0: The people were amazed by my grand manner, playing the role of a queen already. I was only little, but on the throne I had such an air, such a grand appearance that it inspired fear and respect in everyone. You have planted on my forehead this mark of greatness. Everyone said, how can it be that a child inspires such feelings in us after we have seen Gustavus Adolphus on the throne? They noticed that you'd made me so grave and so serious that I wasn't at all impatient, as is the usual way with children. I never went to sleep during all the long ceremonies and all the speeches I had to sit through. Other children have been seen going to sleep or crying on occasions like this, but I received all the different signs of homage like a grown-up who knows that they are his due. I remember very well being told all this and being very pleased with myself about it. Christina of Sweden addressing God and recalling her first convening of the Swedish Parliament in 1633. Hello and welcome to the other half, episode four point twenty one. Christina of Sweden, Athena of the North. We're on the home stretch of the series with only two women left to cover, and we're leaving the best possibly to last or nearly last at least. Christina, Queen of Sweden, is arguably the most fascinating female monarch in early modern history. One of learning and science, independence and free thinking. She is Scandinavia's Elizabeth I in many ways, but their legacy is very different. Christina came to her throne at a young age during the greatest war in its history, and yet gave it all up and went to Rome in voluntary exile. There she will be the guest of many popes and become a key figure in Roman society for decades to come. She led a life that was unconventional in every possible way. She challenged the religious, gender and sexual norms of her day, And while this led to her eventual downfall and damnation by many in her time, it makes her all the more fascinating to our eyes. Hers is a unique story, and a fascinating one, and we'll likely be doing quite a few episodes on her. But I'm sure you'll agree, it'll all be worth it. Now this is a series on women and the Vatican, but at least in today's episode, we'll be taking a short sabbatical to Sweden. I won't be dwelling for too long on her time as Queen, but it is crucial backstory for the rest of her life. That said, I won't be going into great detail on Swedish politics. That's a story for another podcast. But before we get going, I'd like to remind all of my patrons that the poll for the topic of the next season has been released on my Patreon page. We have three very different options for you all to vote on, and while there is an early leader, there is still time for a late surge. If you are already a patron, please vote and if you're not one yet, well, you don't have much time. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other behalf podcast to sign up for as little as a dollar a month, and you can have your say. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The Thirty Years' War was one of the deadliest conflicts in European history. We covered each side of the First World War in the second season of the podcast, and this conflict was no less momentous or destructive for the people of Central Europe. But there are several important differences. The Thirty Years' War was a mass of shifting alliances, causes and aims. No one really wanted it, but everyone seemed powerless to stop it. It upended the traditional power structures of the continent. It saw the collapse of empires and the rise of new kingdoms, perhaps none more unexpectedly than Sweden. Religion was at the heart of a Thirty Years' War. It's one of the key differences between it and the First World War, at least certainly in the early years of the conflict. In those years, the fighting was primarily a civil war within the Holy Roman Empire between its emperor and his Catholic subjects against Protestant elements. The Peace of Augsburg, which had been signed almost a century earlier, had established the principle that each ruler within the empire could set the religion of their territory and demand obedience. But of course, things are rarely simple, and war broke out in 1618 after the defenestration of Prague. Don't ask, it's all really complicated. The Protestants had some early successes, but by the end of the 1620s, they were on the back foot, which was making Protestant Sweden somewhat nervous. They had been distracted by a long-running conflict with the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a conflict which had convinced the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, that significant military reforms were needed. He transformed the Swedish army into arguably the first modern army, with strict discipline, modern tactics, and a reorganisation of the state that saw supporting its armed forces as its highest priority. It may not have had the greatest resources in money or manpower, but it was the most efficiently run government and military on the continent. With this new army, Gustavus Adolphus invaded Catholic Germany in 1630, opening up a new front in the conflict. He won victory after victory, most notably at Breitenfeld, and conquered vast swathes of territory in just a few years. It was a stunning campaign. They scythed through Bavaria in just a year and turned east towards the imperial capital at Vienna. This attack was turned back, but the following year saw the Swedes camped at Lützen near Leipzig in eastern Germany. Gustavus Adolphus and his Swedes were joined in battle by the imperial army. It was a bloody day with over 10,000 battle casualties. The artillery thundered, trees and buildings burned, and smoke coated the battlefield. The air was thick with smoke and death. At midday, the imperial cavalry charged and Gustavus Adolphus was square in the middle of the onslaught. He was shot and stabbed repeatedly and fell dead from his horse. His men rallied and won a famous victory, but at great cost. The great king, one of the greatest generals in European history, was dead. And his heir, at this time of war and tumult, was not a son seeped to military glory, but a six-year-old girl. Christina was born in 1626, the first and only child of Gustavus Adolphus and his wife, Queen Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. The couple had had great trouble in producing healthy children, with Christina having three siblings that were either stillborn or who died shortly after birth. The king's only brother, Karl, had also died while on campaign in Latvia, and Gustavus Adolphus's near-constant presence on the battlefield meant that the succession question was getting ever more pressing. Moreover, the Queen's behaviour was becoming somewhat erratic. As I've said many times before, it is very hard to diagnose a mental illness from 400 years in the future, but it seems that anxiety over her husband's safety and depression at her failed pregnancies regularly overcame her. She must also have known that her own position as Queen could be in danger if she didn't produce a healthy heir soon. Her behaviour is described as being hysterical and aggressive. She muddled her words and struggled to communicate. It's possible that she suffered a stroke that went undiagnosed. Meanwhile, when he was not on campaign, her husband found solace in the arms of his mistress, with whom he had a son, Gustavus. This all made the birth of a healthy heir a cause for grand celebration – even if that heir was a girl. Well, at the time, they actually weren't sure. Indeed, at first, they thought she was a boy. The sources are unclear as to why the mistake was made. Perhaps it was merely wishful thinking. But it's possible that the baby's sex was a little more ambiguous than it is with most newborns. Some have speculated, given the course of the rest of Christina's life, that she was born with a genital abnormality. Or perhaps she was intersex, or a hermaphrodite in the language of the time. Modern statistics suggest that around 1 in a 100 babies are born with some sort of genital abnormality. Without wanting to go into too much detail, some bits could have been larger than expected and mistaken for a penis, or perhaps it was more substantial than that. The sources are also divided on what Gustavus Adolphus's reaction was to the birth of a daughter. But at the very least, he would have recognised it as a mixed blessing. A female heir was better than no heir, but, you know, it would have been easier if she had been a boy. Christina saw very little of her parents in her early years as a princess. Her father was constantly on campaign, while her mother was generally either with him or visiting relatives in Germany. With no siblings likely to be on the horizon, her father was keen for Christina to be raised as a king-in-waiting, so he brought her on parade and military reviews whenever he was back in Sweden. His interest in her upbringing contrasted strongly with that of her mother, who seemed to dislike her instantly and intently. She thought her daughter ugly, which for the Queen, who was obsessed with her own appearance, was the greatest fault a woman could have. She spent most of her first six years with her aunt Catherine, her father's sister, and her husband and children at Stesjeborg Castle just south of Stockholm. She was happy there. Her aunt was intelligent and kind, and she got on well with her cousins. But most importantly, they were present, which was a great improvement on her absent parents. Her father's death changed everything. There was some concern that the kingdom would not accept a female ruler. But while the Riksdag, the Swedish parliament, was a little reticent, the nobility stood squarely behind their new ruler. This six-year-old girl was now officially Queen of the Swedes, Goths and Vandals, Great Princess of Finland, Duchess of Estonia and Karelia, and Lady of Ingria. That is a lot of crowns for a very small head. Naturally, of course, a prepudescent child could not actually rule, so a regency council of five was established, following instructions that Gustavus Adolphus had left. They would rule on her behalf until she came of age, or, as was expected, she married and could pass some or all of the burden of rulership onto her husband. Negotiations for her marriage had been going on before her father's death, but none of her early suitors were, well, suitable. They were variously the wrong kind of Scandinavian, the wrong kind of Protestant, or just the wrong sort of person. Her mother, Maria Eleonora, favoured marriage to the son of the King of Denmark, arguably Sweden's great historic rival, while most of the Regency Council favoured the cause of Friedrich Wilhelm of Brandenburg, whom Prussian enthusiasts may know as the future Great Elector. This was a fight that Maria Eleonora would never win, and while no formal betrothal took place, it was widely understood across Europe at the time that Christina and her German cousin would wed in the future. However, the two never would marry, with Friedrich Wilhelm having a very different destiny than being king of Sweden. After being proclaimed queen, Christina was moved into her mother's household, with its oppressive and shrouded atmosphere of theatrical grief and mourning. Christina hated it. She felt like her mother was making her father's death all about her, and would later say that she was given no space to escape her own grief. Her only escape was learning, and she buried herself in her studies. The education of the new sovereign was a matter of state, and the Riksdag was very clear that it expected Christina to be given a fully male education, and imbued with what one might call Swedish values. That she should be aware of foreign customs, but not taught them. This was an exceptionally thinly veiled dig at her German mother, who was excluded from any role in governing the kingdom or her daughter's education. Maria Eleonora attempted to combat this by smothering Christina, by periodically seizing her from her lessons and locking her up in her apartments. This would not do, so the queen mother was placed under house arrest in the island castle of Gripsholm, about fifty miles from Stockholm. While Christina was once more placed in the care of her aunt Catherine, for the next three years she will be educated there with her cousins Maria, Eleonora, and Carl Gustav though the latter would soon leave to continue his education more formally elsewhere. Their education would be a humanist one, and while she was given a firm grounding in Lutheran Protestantism, she quickly lost faith in the beliefs of her forebears. In her own words, as she went through her childhood, she held, quote, nothing at all of the religion on which I was brought up, and saw it as, quote, nothing more than a trick played by the powerful to keep the humble people down it also seems that none of the humanist thought she was imbued with really stuck. As we will see, her decisions were rarely based on rationality, but instead on emotion. Nature would triumph over nurture. One figure who loomed large over her childhood was Queen Elizabeth I of England. There were precious few Queen Regnants in recent history for herself to model on, and Elizabeth, as a proud, imperious, Protestant monarch, a master of statecraft and learning, with a suspicion of marriage, was the ideal woman to base herself on. Like many women in positions of power, though, she wasn't exactly a fan of the sisterhood. Indeed, one could call her a misogynist. She would later write, "'As a young girl, I had an overwhelming aversion "'to everything that women do and say. "'I couldn't bear their tight-fitting, fussy clothes.' I took no care of my complexion or my figure or the rest of my appearance. I never wore a hat or a mask and scarcely ever wore gloves. I despised everything belonging to my sex. I couldn't stand long dresses and I only wanted to wear short skirts. What's more, I was so hopeless at all the womanly crafts that no one could ever teach me anything about them. Some, including her modern biographer Veronica Buckley, have suggested that all of this may be down to her own gender dysmorphia. From a very young age, she had been thrust into a man's world, given a masculine education, and expected to display masculine values. When added to the fact that she may have been intersex herself, and had the rather negative female role model of her mother, this may explain why she looked down on women, particularly those, like her, that had pretensions of power. Outside the classroom, she loved sport and the outdoors, particularly hunting, riding and fencing. Again, three historically male pursuits. By the time she was in her mid-teens, her aunt had died, as had most of her tutors, so she was left more or less to her own devices. As you may expect from a teenage girl living with minimal supervision, she got involved in a romantic fling with her cousin, Carl Gustav, the eldest son of her late Aunt Catherine. He had graduated from school and had grown into a handsome young man. There were sufficient eyes on her to ensure there was no hanky-panky, but the two exchanged passionate love letters written in code. But while Carl Gustav took this very seriously, and was no doubt dreaming of becoming king, it was all a bit of a game to Christina. Like her heroine, Queen Elizabeth, she saw marriage as a potential danger and a burden, and was certainly not going to tie herself to the first man that showed an interest in her. Indeed, she even went so far as to block his appointment to the Regency Council as High Steward. This was her first intervention in politics, and to be frank, it didn't go that well. Without wanting to go into too much detail, it was all part of a grand strategy to put some uppity ministers in their place, but all it did was to take a load of people off, especially those well-disposed to her, while costing her opponents nothing. This is why we don't let teenagers run governments. This, though, seems to have been the only time before she turned 18 that she tried to interfere in government. Perhaps this first experience was chastening. The girl that would become a ruling queen in November 1644 was not exactly what Hollywood might cast if they were looking for the ruler of a militaristic kingdom at war. She was slight and short, with a hooked nose and missing a few teeth her eyes were bright and lit with a fire of intelligence. She had long, straight, fair hair and a delicate jaw, but all the sources agreed that she was far from the picture of traditional femininity. She was, to put it plainly, a bit of a lad. She carried herself in a masculine manner, swore like a sailor, had a deep and gruff voice, and was prone to minor, casual violence. Now, how much of this was a front to present herself in a way that she thought a king would behave is unclear, but there is no doubt that she cut a very different dash from her heroine, Queen Elizabeth I. She was taking over from the Regency Council, which the Chancellor, Axel Austin Stirner, had dominated. He was the prototypical administrator, cold, efficient, and vital to keeping things running during a war and regency. His achievements and level of respect intimidated the new queen, and she needed him to drop down a peg or two so that she could rise. Her excuse came with the end of a war with Denmark. Oxenstierna had driven this conflict, and he wished to prosecute it to the bitter end. But Christina and many others saw the real enemy as the Habsburgs, so she used this way to force through a peace deal against his wishes. He was also intensely distrustful of the French, who had recently entered the Thirty Years' War on the Protestant side, while Christina favoured an alliance with them. It began a pattern of behaviour where the enemy of her enemy became her friend. His disastrous idea was her fabulous initiative. That's not to say that she didn't also rely on him. Christina was not a healthy young woman, and fell sick with the measles and other illnesses that frequently incapacitated her. During those times, Oxenstierna took the reins of power once again, and this only seemed to build on her distrust of her very capable minister. We haven't talked much about her marriage prospects for a little while, and that's because, though she had a few flings, nothing much had gotten serious. The gossips were also intrigued by her closeness with one of her ladies-in-waiting, a woman called Ebba Spa. This seems to have been a romance driven by Christina. Ebba was just along for the ride, and she wasn't shy in expressing it. The Queen told the English ambassador, the magnificently named Bulstrode Whitelock, that, quote, her inside was as beautiful as her outside. She persuaded Ebba to break off her engagement to Oxenstern's son in favour of the brother of one of her favourites, And rumours circulated that at her wedding, she ordered that all the guests would strip naked and dance for her. Which, you know, is probably not true. But the very fact that this rumour circulated so widely speaks to her reputation at this time. She penned passionate love letters to Ebba, and continued to do so even when they were driven apart by exile. She wrote, I am condemned forever to love and adore you, without being allowed to see you. The envy which the stars have of human happiness prevents me from being entirely happy. For happy I cannot be so long as I am far from you. Grant me, if possible, this boon. Do not let time and distance rob me of the satisfaction of being loved by you. Be assured that, whatever may befall me, I shall never cease loving you. I send you a thousand kisses. She loudly expressed her distaste for heterosexual romance Saying, quote, I could not bear to be used by a man as a peasant uses his fields. This affair with her lady in waiting, and these comments, combined with her masculine behaviour and carriage, made her courtiers despair at the lessening prospect of her marrying and producing an heir. Many of her advisers pleaded with her to marry Karl Gustav, he was the most suitable candidate, but she refused. Her chancellor was insistent to whom are you going to get married? When are you going to get married? Why aren't you getting married now? And so on, and on, and on. And presumably just to get a moment of goddamn peace, she told him that, yes, she was going to marry him. In fact, they were already engaged. This was news to everyone, not least to Carl Gustav, who was totally blindsided by it. Christina didn't lead him along, She quickly told him it was all a ruse, but he was still upset. He was extremely keen to marry her. Whether it was love for her or her crown isn't entirely clear, but he loudly protested it was the former. This supposed betrothal was instrumental in him being appointed to lead the Swedish armies in Germany, which led to a flood of letters coming from the front, full of declarations of love. But still, she refused to marry him. This wasn't out of a want of affection for him. Indeed, one could argue that her behaviour was born out of love. She loved him as a person and a friend, too much to end up in a cold, transactional marriage. By not marrying him, she could give him greater position and influence. But marrying a man? That was not a step she would countenance, not even for one of her best friends. While the Swedish court remained fixated on the question of Christina's marriage, the kingdom had some far more immediate problems. The country was broke. Her father had made the rather bold financial plan of investing heavily in civil infrastructure projects like schools, hospitals and roads, while also fighting a massive war. To pay for it, he sold off everything he could lay his hands on. Lands, titles, industries... Anything within his gift he was basically willing to flog. Amazingly, for a while at least, it worked, kinda. But the issue was that once all these titles and privileges had been sold, there wasn't much left to put on the market. Christina tried to solve this by just creating a bunch of new titles and then selling those. But that really just created a form of title inflation. The more there were, the less special they became. And Sweden just wasn't all that wealthy a country. It didn't have colonial possessions or a trading ethos. So while the English and Dutch middle and upper classes had access to certain luxuries, the Swedes didn't. And then there were religious differences, because it wouldn't be the early 17th century without a big fight about religion. Without wishing to get into the weeds here, there were two branches of Protestantism in Sweden – Calvinism and Lutheranism. Her father and some of his legacy ministers favoured tidying this up with the creation of one unified Swedish church, not unlike what Elizabeth had done in England. The Chancellor opposed this and tried to impose a strict Lutheran regime and the rather misleadingly named Book of Concord, which was basically a manifesto of evangelical Lutheranism. Christina refused to endorse this and tried to continue her father's policy of creating a united church. She stood her ground and got her own way... a bit. The Book of Concord was not imposed, but nor was it condemned. The Chancellor skulked off to his country estates, muttering about this impossible woman he was saddled with as Queen. The following year, 1648, the Thirty Years' War finally ended with the Peace of Westphalia. As I said in the series on Olympia Medelkini, this is not a diplomatic or military history podcast, so I won't go into details on the treaty, but just note that it's at least as important and seismic as the more infamous Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I, with ramifications that lasted for centuries. Sweden emerged extremely strongly from the war. It gained a great deal of territory on the Baltic coast, as well as parts of modern Germany and Poland. It was also awarded a significant war indemnity, which was a great boon to its financial woes. You might expect Christina to have emerged from this a hero, but it wasn't that simple, because the other great victor of the war was France, and they were nasty evil Catholics. And remember, Christina had championed their entry into the conflict. One surprising consequence of the Peace of Westphalia for Sweden was a vast transfer of art from the continent to Stockholm. The Habsburgs had accumulated a vast collection of works of art, but the war had seen much of it being either sold or looted. But there was still enough left that Christina was able to take delivery of, according to Veronica Buckley, quote, Almost 500 paintings, 70 bronzes, 370 scientific instruments, and around 400 Indian curiosities. As well as hundreds of corals, ivories, precious stones, pieces of amber, vases, and other objets d'art. Thousands of medals, two ebony cabinets, and a solitary, live lion bet that lion was thrilled at the prospect of a long overland journey from Prague to Sweden, followed by the prospect of a Swedish winter. Christina was now in possession of one of Europe's finest art collections, and it was all part of a concerted effort by the Queen to build up Sweden's cultural inventory. She was particularly enamoured by the works of the Italian masters that were now in her possession, including paintings by Titian, Veronese and Tintoretto. They depicted a vibrant, colourful, sun-kissed world of opulence and drama, very different from the cold austere kingdom in which she lived. In an attempt to liven things up, she imported armies of scholars and learned men, most notably from France, which was going through the Fronde, a period of civil war between Louis XIV and his people. The Swedes had never taken especially well to foreigners, and these were no exception. They were seen as frivolous, rude and arrogant, while the new arrivals complained about the coldness, both of the weather and of the manners of their hosts. Christina, shockingly, seemed to side with the French immigrants. Her disdain for her own country was only growing, and these new arrivals created a new political base that began to coalesce around her. Christina was fascinated by these people, and dabbled in all sorts of activities – including book collecting, ancient languages, astronomy, and philosophy. She was a voracious reader and loved to show off the things that she had learned. Many marvelled at this cultural titan on the Swedish throne, including the French ambassador, who raved that she was, quote, one of the most esteemed all people in the world. Others, though, found it rather grating and annoying. She recruited these new arrivals into her academy, a monthly meeting of clever people, where she set the agenda. There, they discussed basically whatever she wanted. It was an intellectual talking shop, a salon of debate. Once she had heard everyone speak, she would summarise it all up and produce a consensus. While some thoroughly enjoyed these seminars, others, particularly the Swedish academics, found them very frustrating. Basically, they couldn't get a word in edgeways, not helped by their queen, who they felt overly indulged the new arrivals. One of her favourites was the libertine Pierre Bordelot, whom Christina appointed as her personal physician. She was not a particularly healthy woman, and Bordelot prescribed a strict regimen of baths. I think we can all get on board with that kind of medical advice. He was a clever and cultivated man, but was looked down on by all the snobs who disdained his lower-class upbringing. He, for his part, wasn't shy in his mockery of the arrogant men of the Swedish court. Christina, who too was not exactly overly overburdened with tact or decorum, indulged this and behaved in a very casual and familiar way around him. He was regularly invited into her private quarters and, well, tongues which rarely relaxed around Christina continued to wag. I think, though, a sexual relationship between the two is unlikely. I think Christina just liked to be around him. Among all the people that looked down on her, telling her what to do, who to be with and who to love, Baudelot was a breath of fresh air, an outrageous amusement she liked to keep around. Though she did poke fun at many of these visiting scholars, this didn't stop her from basking in their reflective intellectual glow. She was paying good money for their upkeep, and the return on that investment was the reputation they bestowed. She was known as the Pallas Athena of the North, named the Greek goddess of wisdom. Perhaps the greatest of those that she enticed to Sweden was the philosopher and scientist René Descartes. Although he often fell foul of religious establishment, Descartes was a committed Catholic and Christina would later credit her discussions and debates with him about the nature of love, hate, and goodness as spark for her growing interest in the faith. He had not been all that keen to move to Sweden, too cold and too Protestant, but Christina's interest in his work intrigued him enough to come. He arrived in the autumn of 1649 and seemingly instantly regretted his decision, saying, quote, Here a man's mind seems to freeze in winter, just as the water does. In spite of the graciousness and majesty apparent in all the Queen does, her friendliness and kindness are also evident, so that all that love and virtue and have the honour of approaching her feel bound to devote themselves utterly to her service. Unfortunately, Christina was not someone blessed with patience or a long attention span, and soon she moved on from Descartes, throwing herself into the study of ancient Greek. Descartes would not outlast his first winter, dying of pneumonia in January 1650. Thus did Christina unwittingly kill one of the great minds of the age. Christina wasn't exactly the picture of health herself. She suffered from extreme menstrual pains, fainting fits, insomnia and intense headaches. The prospect of her mortality was constantly on her mind and she felt she had to do something about it. So, she announced to the Riksdag that she had chosen a successor, Karl Gustav. She was met with utter bewilderment. She had already committed to marrying Carl Gustav. This was the only reason he'd been appointed the army's commander-in-chief. Surely their marriage, which should surely come soon, would have children. Why the need for all this fuss? She responded to the stunned Parliament, I am telling you now it is impossible for me to marry. I am absolutely certain about it. I do not intend to give you reasons. My character is simply not suited to marriage. I have prayed to God fervently that my inclination might change, but I simply cannot marry. They were so shocked by this revelation that they initially refused her proposal. But war appeared to be brewing once more in Europe. I mean, when was it not around this time, and the kingdom's financial troubles had continued even after the end of the war. So, in the interest of stability, they accepted Karl Gustav as heir. Hopefully their young queen would eventually grow up, see sense, listen to them, and just marry the guy. If they believed that, they had clearly not been listening this entire time. For Christina, this was the ideal solution. She could do as she pleased and leave the messy business of marriage and children to Carl Gustav. With all of this settled, she could finally go about the business of being officially crowned queen. She'd been ruling for five years, but war and recession had meant that the ceremony had been put off. Her reign had transformed Sweden's cultural position... No longer Europe's backwater, it was now a cultural and military force to be reckoned with. Christina's coronation could be its coming-out party to the world. It would be a fabulous affair and no expense would be spared. New robes and a carriage were ordered from France, and tapestries depicting Sweden's recent glories were made. Traditionally, Swedish monarchs were crowned in the cathedral at Uppsala, but this would be too big and too grand for so modest a building she would be crowned at the Stokirchen, literally the Great Church in Stockholm. On the 22nd of October, 1650, she paraded through the city in an open carriage, resplendent in gold and jewels, in a gown cut in the French fashion. She walked alone to the church altar, followed by her heir and senior nobles. Her mother was at the back, their beef still on full display. There, the archbishop placed the crown on her head and placed the full regalia of royalty in her hands. As she left the cathedral, she was met by an unrelenting crash of celebratory cannon fire, as 1,800 guns were fired in turn. Apparently, it took two hours to do it all. The feasting and celebrations went on through the night. A vast banquet was thrown, with the centrepiece being oxen stuffed with turkey and geese, and the fountains flowed with wine. Nobles and peasants alike danced in the streets and in the palace's courtyards, amidst widespread rejoicing. This would be the start, surely, of a new age. The age of Christina. But not six months later, she made a stunning announcement to her family. She didn't want to be queen anymore. She was going to abdicate.